Hello and welcome to This Wildlife, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from across the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. As usual, I'm your host Amy Turner and today we're joined by Lauren Arthur. Lauren is currently a wildlife TV presenter in South Africa and also has an extensive background as a marine biologist and we'll be talking to her all about her journey from the ocean to the African wilderness, her wildlife experiences and also the challenges that she faces presenting live from all different environments. So Lauren, thanks so much for coming on and yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on board. No worries. Thanks for your time. And so to kick off, some of our listeners will probably know you best for your daily broadcast from the Kruger National Park as a presenter on Safari Live. But you've had a fantastically diverse career, not only on land, but also in the ocean as a marine biologist. So could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing all of this amazing stuff? Sure, sure. Yes, it's been a very bizarre journey. Um, I studied zoology with no real idea what I was going to do. And of course, I took a gap year, explored, and then I decided that the ocean was actually the place for me. So after doing a master's in marine biology, um, zoology and marine biology are quite closely linked, of course, um, I was lucky to not enough to go on many expeditions. And I first ended up in Fiji, working on a remote marine conservation project, um, volunteering, and I did my paddy diving course. So I got all the way up to rescue level, And I also learned all about how to survey marine animals, how to dive, how to free dive, how to basically just work in the ocean. And I thought, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. So I went back and did my master's after that story. And I was lucky enough to end up with a thesis project in the Maldives. Um, It was studying the socioeconomics of whale sharks, how people feel about sharks, how much people would pay to swim with Mm. these sharks. Do they value them? Do they not value them? And to cut a long story short, I just met the right Mm. people and I ended up getting a job offer to come back as a marine biologist in the Maldives. And ever since then, my career has just, well, stemmed from there, really. Wow, what a diverse range of environments and you know, you've operated in so many places. I'm I'm kind of obsessed with all things diving and marine life, as, as well as Africa, um, I may add. But uh, yeah, you're making me miss diving even more. And moving into more land-based work, could you tell us what, what led you there? Sure. So I did eight years in the Maldives. Um, I rescued mantas from fishing nets. I rescued turtle eggs from drowning. I gave mouth to mouth to a turtle to save it. I operated on turtles. Um, I replanted coral. I replanted masses and masses of coral using fishing line. And I had a fantastically diverse, incredible, incredible journey there working with the most top A-list celebrities, trying to get them to engage in the ocean. And eventually after eight years, I just decided, you know, it's time to move on. I need a new challenge. I'm someone that really, really needs to be challenged. Mm. And I left. I went traveling for a little while because I'd been working. We don't get weekends. We don't get days off in Maldives. Can't celebrate the holidays. So I decided to go traveling and take some time out. 
Um, and then I saw a job for Dive Live. And I thought, what on earth is this? And they were looking for experienced marine biologists who could also dive um, to present from underwater live. And I thought, I don't even know if that makes any sense. So I'll apply for it. Um, <laughs> never thinking in a, in a, you know, never thinking that I would get this yeah. job. And I did. And it was working for Wild Earth. So they were currently running Safari yeah. Live and Dive Live. So Dive Live was a pioneering project. You go underwater, you have a microphone in your mask, you have a full face mask, you have speakers, you have headset, and you are connected to 300 meters of fiber optic cable to the yeah. surface where you present live from underwater. So it's pretty much exactly what I'm doing now, but you're underwater. And it was an incredible project. It was really successful, lots of challenges. Um, just in case anyone isn't aware, water and technology don't really mix. <laughs> um, and yeah, after that project finished, Wild Earth contacted me and they said, you know, it was it, it was great. Let's get you onto mm. safaris. And I originally said, oh, no, no, um, I'm a water baby. <laughs> and I, as much as I studied zoology, I spent a month in the Amazon. I've done lots of terrestrial projects. I didn't really know that much about Africa. I'd only been here once for the sardine run. Yeah. And my boss, Graham Wallington, said, no, 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 just come, just try it. And I thought, okay, I like a challenge, <laughs> let's try it. So I came to the bush uh, here in South Africa and did a really intensive three-month training program, very intensive. Yeah. I had never even seen a hyena in real life before. <laughs> I didn't know any of the birds. Okay. Um, and yeah, it just went really well and I'm still here and I love it. Yeah. What a prime example of just saying yes to an opportunity and it completely paying off. And you mentioned about your training when you arrived in Southern Africa. For those of you know who might be thinking about getting into this industry or just interested in knowing what the training is like, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your, your field guide training? Well, obviously, of course I will, but obviously my route was slightly different from the norm. So I don't know if I could give you that proper normal um, pathway, but I can give you okay. recommendations for anyone wanting to do anything in the field. And yeah. knowledge is important, but mm. you don't necessarily need to go to university. Mm. I would say just get as much experience as you can. Get experience, get experience in the water, on land, wherever you want to be, mm. the North Pole. Just get experience so that you can prove that you're someone that has passion. Knowledge will come with that. And that you're, you're hands-on, you can do it. It's all very well meeting someone that has the theoretical knowledge, but they've maybe never been on their hands and knees and changed a Land Rover car tire next to a pride of lions. Mm. <laughs> um, so you've really got to just get out there, get experience, join expeditions, volunteer, um, mm. even if it's only for a month, work with an organization, network, that's sort of the best way to get into wildlife these days than necessarily always having the theoretical knowledge. Yeah, obviously experience is so key. And as you say, and sadly quite hard to get at the moment, but I'm sure once lockdown is over, people are going to start scrambling for different opportunities to get involved, which is awesome. Now on the podcast, we love to get a real snapshot of behind the scenes, if you like, of all of our guests' work. So for yourself, what, what does a normal day look like to you? Is there such a thing as a, as a normal day? Probably not, but we do have a schedule. We do do the sunrise safari. Um, the times change throughout the seasons. We used to wake up, my alarm used to go off at 2.40 a.m. 
for our thermal droning safaris. Um, luckily, it's not that early anymore. But then, of course, we have our sunset safaris as well. But in terms of what you're going to see out there and what's going to happen, you you cannot predict. You never know what's around the corner. <laughs> um, tires go flat, cars break. The other day I had to get rescued. I um, was following a leopard and I don't quite know what I'd done, but I I thought I clipped a tree. Mm. But apparently the tree went right through the car and there was a huge <laughs> hole in the door. So, um, yeah, we had to get rescued and pulled out of the tree. And, you know, you never know what to expect. You never know what the weather is going to bring. The weather can bring huge challenges, yeah. um, especially with technology, rain, wind. And, yeah, there's lots of maintenance to be done on the vehicles. There's lots of maintenance to be done in camp. There's lots of research to be done. So, yeah, I guess no day is normal, but... There is a predictable routine of the sunrise safari and the sunset safari. Mm. Well, I'm such an avid fan of Safari Live. And it's funny because you do often hear about you guys having to head back to Camp Midrive for a little technical niggle here and there. And then scenes of you desperately trying to stay dry um, in the rain. So when the sun does come out, you follow the lives of some beautiful wild families from Ribbon the Hyena and her cubs, which are absolutely adorable. Um, to leopards, <laughs> you're always dog. finding leopards. <laughs> always. Tell us um... a little bit more about that. Sure. So basically, we have a game reserve, it's called Juma, and we operate from here. So we drive and we've been operating here under Wild Earth. The company's undergone a bit of a transformation. So we're now Wild Earth um, for about 10 years. I've obviously not been here that long. But what that does mean is we have been following these characters for 10 years. And I knew Ribbon when she was younger, obviously, a little bit slimmer, and the lowest ranking hyena Mm. who had lost so many cubs was bullied, was picked on, was injured because all the other, she couldn't feed because the other hyenas would not let her. And now she's the matriarch of the clan with two beautiful new babies. Um, So what we do out here is just connect people to nature. And I must mention that recently during the coronavirus, the pandemic, people in lockdown around the world, it's been a life-changing epidemic that's probably never going to be forgotten in history that people are going through right now and people have found wild there yeah we're on youtube we're on facebook we're on all the various different platforms Mm. and it's free so you can literally sit in your sofa while you're in lockdown or not and watch us and you're supposed to be able to feel like you're on the back of our safari vehicle things go wrong mistakes happen Mm. moments will just make you think did that really just happen (laughs) And we're supposed to be able to connect to what you see. So we're so lucky that we have leopards, lions. I found a pride of lions yesterday that we've not seen in months. And they've got eight little cubbies with them. And if you can't get out in nature, or maybe you can't fly to Africa, this is supposed to bring it to you. And I'm a real firm believer through all my career, all my education, that if Mm -hmm. you can connect to an animal, you'll never stop caring about it. And if anyone knows my journey, even if you don't, I came to the bush with severe arachnophobia. (laughs) It's not that I didn't appreciate the eight-legged creatures, but I was terrified. Now I'm in love with them. I've got two wolf spiders in my room that I treat like pets. They probably despise me, but I'm always like, hello, little wolfie. (laughs) And my point is that once you really start to learn about an animal's biology or its ecology or its behavior, you start to think, wow, you start to really appreciate 
their presence in the world, like Ribbon. Ribbon's a hyena, everyone. She's a very fat, large hyena that has terrible gas problems. <laughs> and she's maybe not the most aesthetically beautiful of all animals, but everyone around the world, like yourself, has fallen in love with her. Yeah. And that's because we spend hours with her, hours with her each day. And we recently discovered that she had two cubs. Yeah. So I'm trying to change people's perception of hyenas from Hemingway to the Lion King. They've just got this terrible perception of man eating scavenging bone crushers yeah. who devour the dead. And that's not the case at all. They're actually so social and so intelligent and really emotional animals that have incredible biology. Yeah. So just even if I make a difference to just a few people's life by getting them to change their opinion on mm. an animal, that's me done my job. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite glad you mentioned the arachnophobia because if I'm completely honest with myself, I'm not a massive fan of red Roman spiders. They're, I think, um, generically known by that. Um, They're about the size of your hand. They follow your torchlight. And I've been reliably informed that they have a powerful mechanical bite on them. Um, Yeah, safe to say they're not my favourite. And there have been occasions where... (laughs) I've moved rather swiftly away from these guys, but you give me hope. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe I just need to get a grip. Well, I mean, I don't have one crawling over my face, but I really do appreciate them. I yeah, really it's just... Uh, All the solifugees. They're called solifugees, the red ones. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Now, talking of respecting and connecting to animals, I can see how it's easier to connect with lion cubs and baby elephants because even the most hardened person really can't resist them. But with marine life, such as like conger eels and the ones that aren't quite so cute, that must be more difficult. How how did you find that? Absolutely. More of a challenge. I mean, people love dolphins. They Not many people know about manta rays. I did a lot of work with mantas, but they love mantas, um, the colorful fish. But it's really hard to get people to... My biggest challenges were, of course, sharks. I love sharks. They're probably my ultimate favorite group of animals in the entire world. But they're not cute. They're not cuddly. They're not fluffy. They have this terrible reputation. Um, the book jaws and the movie jaws is in my opinion, a lot behind that. We're still producing movies called Sharknado. I mean, what on earth is a Sharknado? I have no idea. I don't want to know. But I do know that it's not positive in the world of sharks. And I think that was my biggest challenge as well as coral. Coral is an animal. It's a colony of animals, actually. It's a colony of organisms. It's in the same family as jellyfish. And they don't look like that. They look like a plant or a rock. So people don't connect the two. They stand on them. They mine them, they touch them with their Mm. fins. And what they don't realize is they're actually killing a vital organism. So that that was my biggest challenge, you're correct. People, you have non-swimmers, you also have people that are afraid of the ocean, which I completely understand. So it's a lot more challenging to get people to really connect with the weird and wonderful animals than than it is on a safari. Lion cubs, leopard cubs, um, hyena cubs, you know, they're also cute. But you're right, the ocean is a lot more challenging. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that's such a challenge. But you did do, you know, an incredible job of that on on Dive Live. Now, on the podcast, and people will know this by now, we love a story on here. I think it really inspires people and like kind of engages the imagination. And you must have a once in a lifetime kind of encounter or experience that, that really sticks in your mind. 
Yes, there is. And one was, um, I'm willing to put my hand up here and see possibly stupid on my part. Um, but I saw a manta ray entangled in fishing line, which is human caused. And although it wasn't myself that had put that manta ray in fishing line, I knew it was my species. And I thought, I have to rescue this. I'm a free diver. I'm a certified free diver to go down to 30 wow, meters okay. on one breath. I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. So I take a knife and the manta ray is a lot deeper than I anticipated. Mm. I didn't probably consider yeah. the currents. And I went down. And I managed to free this manta. She panicked a little bit, but I think there's a part of me that really believes she yeah. knew what I was doing. Mm. And I cut her free. Wow. But I didn't realize I have no air left Gosh, okay. in my lungs. Um, so I almost blacked out. There's something called a, sh- a shallow water blackout. Um, luckily, there was people on the surface monitoring me, watching me. I didn't go down alone. So if anything had happened, happened mm. they would have came down. But it was slightly foolish on my part. I know that. <laughs> but I could not see that manta ray wrapped in fishing line for the rest of its life, knowing that that was humans, yeah. my species that had done that. So I'll never forget that. I'll never forget making that decision to go down at risk yeah. of my own life. But I am aware that to some people that may sound slightly foolish, but I didn't black out and I did have people around me, but I rescued that female and she came right up to the surface and she flipped over onto her back. Mantas are known to, um, you know, barrel roll, showed me her tummy and just swam with me for a few minutes. And I'm still convinced to that day that she was thanking me. Um, Some may laugh at that, (laughs) I know, but they're highly intelligent animals. They can recognize themselves in the mirror. They can recognize individual humans. They have the largest brain to body size ratio of all fish. So I do think there was an element there that that manta knew I rescued her. And I really believe to this day that, well, that's a crazy story and having dived with mantas myself for the first time last year um out in indonesia i can absolutely understand the devastation of seeing a a wonderful creature like that stuck stuck in a net yeah it's cool and for africa those of us who watch from our own homes are often lucky enough to experience some of these incredible encounters with you albeit from the sofa any that come to mind there i mean finding ribbons cups that was my story that you know i'm i'm the one that probably loves you know, the most, I'm crazy about them and they smell and they're, oh, they're not the most yeah. pleasant creatures, but I love them. Oh. Um, I figured out that Ribbon was pregnant and her journey has been such a story. You know, she's went from the bottom of that proverbial ladder right to the top. Hyenas have a strict hierarchy and she did it all on her own. She went against the grain and science hasn't completely, you know, documented that. Mm. And just watching her story, just thinking she's pregnant, looking for the nipples, realizing that she's lactating, watching her, following her, check den sites. Mm. I know there's going to be cups. And patience paid off. You know, we sat at this termite mm. mound for hours with nothing happening, nothing to talk about, just waiting, waiting, waiting for that moment. And it came. And that moment that those two head pops, I, I, I cried live on air, which is slightly embarrassing. Um, but emotion just completely took hold of me. And I was live on camera and I just, I cried. Um, I was so happy for Ribbon. And that, that's a moment I'll never forget, yeah. ever. Yeah. Hyenas, they're, they're fascinating, actually, because they've got a really complex and female-dominated societies. Is that right? Very complex. Um, 
It's a matriarchal system, so it's entirely female dominated. So they'll have a matriarch at the top. The females are far more important than the males. And you're born with your rank. Mm. So it's like the silver spoon effect. If your mum's a high ranker, you'll be a high ranker. If your mum's a low ranker, you'll be a low ranker. And it's just incredible watching the social dynamics. Mm. There's also a, a hyena that I feel very privilege to spend time with in the Masai Mara she's also very famous for anyone who's interested called Waffles Love Google her and <laughs> her story is also incredible um, we used to broadcast live from the Masai Mara so I got to spend three months up there following the Masai Mara characters who were also incredible wow. and I think once you really learn an animal and learn its history and who that animal is on a personal level uh, you're in awe of them and how they survive and thrive out here, especially hyenas. It's such well. a progressive society and, and quite right too. It is. So <laughs> having listened to just a few of your wildlife experiences from mantas to sharks to hyena to leopard to lion and the hundreds of species you must have seen during your career so far, is there a particular species that you're vying to see next? Yeah, what, what's next on the list? Oh, so many. I've got a huge list on my phone of my wish list for the ocean, and I've got a separate list for the wish list from the land. Um, I want to see all the species of hyena. There's four different species in the family. I'd love to see an aardvark, love to see a pangolin, love to go to India and see Mm. the tigers. I also want to swim with blue whales and leatherback turtles. Oh, I've got a huge list. And I think throughout my life, obviously I'm getting older (laughs) as we all are, I I want to continue to travel and continue to tick them off the bucket list. I actually returned from Ethiopia two months ago now with my partner, who's a cameraman here. And we went in search of the Ethiopian wolf. Now that sounds cool. Yes, for those of you who don't know it. It's the most endangered carnivore in Mm. the entire world. There's only 450 left and they're stunning. Google them. They're gorgeous. Really, really gorgeous. Well, it's obvious that you'll be traveling the world in search of these elusive animals and and species long into the future. And now onto a slightly darker note, um, sadly our listeners will be very aware of the poaching crisis and wildlife crime that that is racing across the world, sadly. Do you see any trace of poaching or wildlife crime in, in your work? I don't see it directly, um, but it does affect us. We do have lots of white rhino here. We have mm. a family of three that we see every day and oh, we're not wow. allowed to show them. Yeah, And that saddens me, although I understand. Mm. I fully understand the reasons behind it. You don't want to advertise that you have rhino and it could attract the wrong attention. Yeah, absolutely. But it saddens me that I can't show our viewers and our fans these beautiful creatures. Mm. because like I said once you start caring about an animal you can help protect them Mm. but if we can't show the rhino is we can talk about them but it's tricky to talk about something and make someone feel in love with an animal when it's not on screen Mm. Uh, we have a tiny little rhino calf running around and it's so cute (laughs) and we can't show it but I, I do understand but it does make me sad that that's where that's where we're at we have a huge anti-poaching unit here who are incredible humans that dedicate their entire life, make so many sacrifices to protecting the rhinos. And we have a curfew. So we're not allowed out our camp at a certain time unless we have permission. Mm. And the reason is the anti-poaching unit will immediately assume that you're a poacher. Mm. So for your own life, you have to make sure that you abide by these rules and that you, if, we can go on night bumbles and enjoy, but we must get permission yeah. so that the, po- the anti-poaching unit know that we're out. So it affects our lives. Um, they also come here and they do inspections with sniffer dogs. 
of course it's just part of the protocol but the sniffer dogs come in check the room mm. smell everything they check your person they check our storage just to make sure we don't have anything of rhino on us mm. so it's very thorough it's very intense and it's admirable what these people do but it's also sad that this is where we're at that we have to fight against this in order to protect the rhinos yeah it's obviously something that you just can't get away from but on a positive note i'm glad you mentioned the strength of your anti-poaching unit they obviously do incredible work and we actually have an episode coming up specifically on wildlife crime so you can look into that a bit more now anyone who's been to a game reserve or to a national park or on a game drive will know that it's a pretty hard life for for animals how do you communicate these sometimes grisly scenes to young children you know animal kills how, how do you do that it's hard that's probably the biggest challenge of my job I struggle um, some people here are able to deal with it easier than I am and I'm educated enough to know it's nature. It must happen, but I do find it hard. And we do, since lockdown, we've actually opened the first 45 minutes of our safari to children only all around the world. We will only answer questions from children. And then the drive opens up to everyone. And it's amazing. The countries we're getting on board, Paraguay, Brazil, mm, yeah. Norway, Canada. It's incredible. Yeah. And we always say at the start, there's a disclaimer, you don't know what you're going to see. Mm. And if we are dealing with a specific school and we know there's a kill, we know there's a leopard with a kill in the tree, we, of course, ask for permission to show it. Mm. It's not just the presenters. People forget there's a cameraman on the back who's incredibly talented and yeah. he's in charge of visually telling the story. I verbally tell the story. So the cameramen are experts at choosing angles and ways to show the animal with avoiding the gore. Yeah. So it's not just me, it's also the cameraman's responsibility. You know, they're they're amazing guys. And I think it's just about teaching people this is nature. Mm. If the leopards or the lions didn't hunt, the populations of impala or buffalo or, you know, steambok or diker would get mm. out of control. Absolutely. It's nature's way of keeping everything in check. And I think it's all about your delivery. It's all about the way you explain it. And it's all about the way you film it. If you are dealing with kids, you're probably not going to show a buffalo hunt <laughs> because it's hard to watch for me as an yeah. adult. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is a really hard part of the job. Yeah. It seeing it probably would be perhaps a little too much for young children for a buffalo kill. So we'd all agree that Safari Live has been brilliant to engage people and to get people involved in experience of game drives. And has also provided a, you know, a massive light relief during lockdown. Out of interest, do you believe this model of Safari Live could be rolled out elsewhere across the globe to aid conservation efforts in, in different environments? I really do. People, some people are maybe wheelchair bound or disabled or don't have the financial means or, you know, any reason to get around the world. And that's why we are here. We can bring it to you. And we work very hard here, tireless. I haven't had a day off in a very long time, but we're here and we're doing it because we love it and we want to do it for you. And you can talk to us. You can ask us questions. We can have conversations. I always try to bring the ocean into my discussions because mm. everything's connected. And there's a really famous quote by Sylvia Earle that said, you know, without the blue, there would be no green. So without yeah, the oceans, without the water, <laughs> there wouldn't be no land, there would be no greenery. Mm. And it's just important just to remind everyone that every ecosystem is connected, even if you don't initially think that it is. And that's how I see my role, just 
getting people to think, oh, I didn't know that. This is why they do that. Or that's why that's connected to that. Or, ah, oh, sharks are quite similar to lions. And, you know, it's just to get people to think outside the box. And if I can teach one person one new fact per day, then mm. I'm more than happy. Completely. And I think it's an added benefit that you have this wonderful insight of both the ocean and the land. And it definitely gives a very holistic perspective when you're presenting. It is great. <laughs> and in your opinion, for our listeners, what's the best way to help conservation efforts globally and make our planet a little bit of a better place for our wildlife and ecosystems? Absolutely. For those that maybe want to financially support, um, which is tricky in today's world, there's so many different organizations that need help. Yeah. And whether it's the ocean or the land, I just think do your research. Mm. You know, there's a wonderful organization, for example, called the Olive Ridley Project, mm. who work all of their own backs to try and remove these huge ghost nets from the ocean that's mm. killing so many animals. Yeah. And, you know, you can donate. But if you don't have financial means, that's absolutely fine. Just support. Mm teach, share, follow these people that inspire you, follow people that are teaching you and share their message, mm. share their posts, continue to just engage. So mm. You can watch virtual safaris for free. And that alone is supporting us. We need the viewership to keep going. And it's not a financial contribution, but, you know, just keep educating yourself and just sharing that message, yeah. I think. It's now or never. If you look, we're on the brink of another mass extinction of animals, I believe, unless we act now. And the yeah. human world is not in a great way either. Yeah. We're suffering from a huge virus. And I think now is the time to make changes within yourself. Mm. Stop buying plastic straws. Mm. Don't ever buy another plastic straw, ever. And if you're someone that really loves drinking from through straws... I do to avoid red wine going to my teeth. <laughs> buy a metal straw that you can clean. You know it's cleaned by yourself. You can travel with it. You can take it anywhere in the world. You can keep it in your handbag. And that's one small difference that you can make to make a change to the world. Yeah. So I think people just need to think, how can I make a difference? And even if it's just one difference, that's enough. Well, there we go. Get on those small changes out there, people. <laughs> and Instagram, you've got a flooded account uh -huh. where you can see all of these amazing animals that you've chatted about today. How, how can we find you on there? It's Lauren underscore Arthur seven. So that's L-A-U-R-E-N underscore A-R-T-H-U-R seven. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and sadly, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But Lauren, it's been awesome to chat to you. The woman herself from Safari Life. Thanks so much. What a great insight into your wildlife adventures and, and crazy journey from the ocean and out onto land. Thanks again. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. You've listened to This Wildlife Podcast. Please do check us out on Instagram and Facebook by searching for This Wildlife Podcast. You'll find loads of photos and links to all of our incredible guests. And you can also find out who's joining us next week. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd appreciate it so, so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and perhaps share it with your friends. This really helps us to create fresh content, to spread the word, and bring the wild to you.